Who's in charge here? That's the question I got periodically when I worked as a busboy at a restaurant in college from a disgruntled patron. With my busboy rag draped over my shoulder, someone who did not get their order right from a Ricky server would approach me and say, who's in charge here? It's a question that's been asked throughout the ages of governments, families, churches, businesses. Who's in charge here? Well, that preeminent question is answered in Psalm 2. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 2. As you're turning there, uh, I want to welcome you. Thank you for gathering to worship with us this morning. My name is Kenneth Bruce, and I'm the senior pastor here at Westwood, the pastor of the best church in the whole wide world. I'm a little biased. I'm a little biased, but I love my people. It's a joy to be your pastor. And I love the hearing, the sound of the pages turning of your Bible. So good. Uh, if you're following along, uh, you can also pull out the, the Westwood app where there are notes that will come along with the sermon. We're finishing up a sermon series, a three-part sermon series called Ambassadors in Exile. As followers of Jesus during this tumultuous political season, this chaos of the culture and the world in which God has strategically placed us, it's good for us to be reminded of who we are in Christ and how we are to live in a world that is not our home that we indeed are sojourners who are passing through, anticipating the great and glorious kingdom that awaits those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. When we get to Psalm 2, we see where King David sets before us what this king looks like and who really is in charge. We saw a couple weeks ago in Daniel chapter 2, that there is a kingdom greater than any earthly kingdom. In fact, God raises up a small stone who will demolish every earthly kingdom. And this small stone will grow into a great mountain. We saw in the scriptures where that small stone is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is indeed building a kingdom that will last forever. Therefore, as followers of Jesus, we give our lives to the advancement of a kingdom that will not be shaken and last forever. Last week we saw in Titus chapter 3 about how we as followers of Jesus are to follow him as we submit to earthly governments, those whom God has strategically and intentionally placed in authority above us, that indeed we honor the Lord by being good citizens here on earth. Now, as we turn to Psalm 2, it's important for us to rightly understand what David is about to reveal to us. Now, as your pastor, I want to continue to teach you how to read your Bible, that we don't just randomly open pages and see what's in front of us. All of Scripture fits together. In fact, Jesus teaches us how to read the Old Testament in Luke 24. In Luke 24, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. He's walking along two disciples, and he's explaining to them who he is. In verse 27, says, "...the beginning with Moses and all the prophets." He interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So Jesus, teaching the Bible, wants us to read the Bible in light of him. That indeed all of scripture is driving us to Jesus. 
We see, he says later on when he meets with his disciples in the upper room in verse 44, he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so as we read our Bibles, as we read Genesis to Revelation, it's all red letter. It's all driving us to Jesus. It's his word, and he is the focus of all that is written. And so when we get to Psalm 2, King David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. Psalm 2 is David's call out to foreign nations who seek to rise up against the Lord and his anointed one. As mankind lives in perpetual mutiny against God, we are reminded this morning of who is really in charge. Look with me in the text. I want you to notice these four truths from Psalm 2. The first is this. The nation's foolish and futile rage against the Lord. David asks a rhetorical question, verse one, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The nations here is a reference to unbelievers, various nations around Israel that are seeking to destroy her and her kings. We see people who are passionately hating God's people. They go into full rage monster against the Lord and against his anointed one. They scheme, they conspire, they plot how they can rid themselves of the Lord and of his law. And yet it's foolish, it's futile. It's verse one, in vain. Emperors and nations can kick and scream and yell and blaspheme, but it's a waste of time because the Lord's reign is perfect and permanence. The kings of the earth, verse two, they conspire against the Lord and his anointed one. Why don't they realize that God is the one who is giving them life and breath? Don't they understand that's the Lord's patience and forbearance that isn't just wipe them off the face of the earth? Can they not see the common grace of God giving them the ability to eat and to walk and to think and to love? The answer is no. They can't see. 
In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. Now, we see this all throughout church history and world history. We see rich countries and poor countries. We see Western Hemisphere and Eastern Hemisphere. We see it in first world countries and in third world countries. That we see kings of the earth, they take their stand. They conspire together against the Lord. What do they want to do? Verse 3. They want to tear off the chains of God's love. They want to get rid of the ropes of God's grace. If they can just get rid of God, if they can just rid the earth of the Lord, then finally everything will be fine. They'll have their happiness. They'll have their freedom. You see, this fierce scheming that the nations and their kings have of taking down the Lord and his anointed one, it's not just talking about David. You see, this is actually driving us to someone greater. In Acts chapter 4, the early church read this psalm in light of Jesus. In Acts 4.25, the early church prayed, You said through the Holy Spirit, By the mouth of our father David, your servant, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. You see, the early church saw Psalm 2's fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus, that we see Herod and Pilate and Roman soldiers and the nation of Israel rise up and conspire against the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 2 is not only describing what's happening in David's kingdom as nations are surrounding Israel seeking to destroy her, he's actually pointing forward more than a thousand years to the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one who had nations and kings who took their stand against him. They hated him, they despised him, they crucified him. And even today, it continues to take place. Rejecting his his word, the world hates the Lord and what he stands for. The people rage against the Lord and his anointed one. For 27 years, Mao Zedong was the leader of the Communist Party in China He raised up intense persecution against the church and declared that he was God and he was to be worshipped. Those who did not bow their knee, they would be executed. During that 27-year reign, 90% of church buildings were destroyed. Pastors were sent off into work camps. Millions of people died under his leadership. What's interesting It's as the church was sent underground, she multiplied. And we see that the church, house churches, began to spread. And today, there are millions and millions of faithful followers of Jesus. You see, don't don't miss this. Mao became unintentionally an instrument of evangelism by God's hand. You see, every stick that is thrown at Jesus turns into a boomerang. 
and God uses it as means to turn it around for the good of his people and the fame of his name. And yet, let us be careful here. When we say nations who rage against the Lord, we're not just thinking about other nations. This is also a reference to our nation. We are a people who have murdered millions of babies inside of their mother's womb and said it's okay. We have become a nation that has bowed down to the gods of comfort and wealth. We have become a nation that has turned its back on the poor and the needy, the orphan and the widow. Let us be careful not to sit high and mighty and think about all of these other nations who are raging against the Lord when we look around our culture and we see people just like you and me who have the same skin tones, same socioeconomic status, same citizenship, citizenship status, doing the exact same thing. God have mercy. We are a people who are in desperate need of the Lord. And yet as people rage, as people clench their fists and raise their voices, as they plot against the Lord and against his, against his anointed one, let us also understand that indeed it is futile. It is verse one, in vain. As communists and capitalists work to try and rid themselves of the Lord, make no mistake, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ marches on. Come what may, not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. We will move forward regardless of what happens around us. How do I know this? Because the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. Secondly, what I want you to notice in the text is the Lord laughs at his enemies. This is so good. Contrast here, the difference between the violent delight of the Lord's enemies and then the sublime serenity of God himself. As his enemies conspire against him, as they take their stand against the Lord, as the people's plot and the nation's rage, the Lord laughs. Look at, look at verse four. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Nations rage, kings conspire against the Lord. He sits on his throne and he laughs. The Lord laughs. He's never dismayed. He's never stressed out. He's never wringing his hands over his enemies and what they're going to do to him. He never fears their plans or purposes. I remember when my, one of my sons was really young, he used to go to the, the stove and pull out the bottom drawer and pull out pots and pans and make a big mess. Well, at one point, we're trying to make dinner. We're trying to make all the preparations. And it's just, it's chaos at our house. Five kids. And we're just like, let's just see if we can keep this thing moving. And so I saw what he was up to. And I put my foot right by the drawer, right? And this little toddler with all of his strength and all of his might is pulling on this drawer. But it's not moving, it turned into screaming and a tantrum and tears. He's angry. There's rage. He thinks he can do it. And I began to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> the nations are raging. 
They want what they want. And the Lord's foot is there and he laughs. It's kind of like if Evander Holyfield was in his prime and he's there in the ring, muscles bulging, feet dancing, ready to take on whoever opens the door and out comes me. (laughs) I would get pummeled. I would get crushed. I would get into the ring and he would be like, (laughs) that's what the Lord is doing here in verse four. You nations rage, you people plot in vain. You think you can take me down? (laughs) It's so good. That's cute. That's what we see here in the text. The Lord, he's seated on his throne, high and exalted, and he's not panicking, he's not fearful, he is in full control of all things. As we survey the landscape and we see these mighty governments, the rich and the mighty and the powerful, they seek to take down the Lord. He laughs at their evil schemes. He shrugs his shoulders. He's not impressed. He's not wowed by what they think they can accomplish here. And so instead of arguing, instead of clapping back with an argument, we see here the Lord, he makes a declaration. Verse five, he speaks to them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath. And watch this pronouncement, verse six, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I'm gonna let you know, you can rage, you can plot, you can scheme against me, but please understand, I've already taken care of this. My king is already there. He's already seated. We see here where David is recalling the covenant that God made with him. Back in 2 Samuel chapter seven, we see where God makes a covenant with David and tells him that there is gonna come a son from David who will sit on his throne forever. Well, we see throughout the Old Testament, it's not Solomon, it's not the rest of the kings of Judah, there's another king one who's greater, one who sits on the throne of David forever. You see, Jesus is the true son of David who sits on this throne forever. As the nations rage and they conspire against the Lord, the truth remains, Jesus reigns. As people rise up against his people and against the Lord, Jesus is seated on the thrones. We see nations, they, they talk about how they can try and get rid of, the, rid of the Lord. And he says, too bad. I said what I said. It's already done. My king, he's seated on the throne. And you can't do anything about it. Thirdly, what we see in the text is we see the Lord rules over the nations. In this third stanza of David's poem, he declares what the Lord has said. Verse 7, you are my son, Today I've become your father. David here is pointing to a coronation day, the pronouncement of the father and the son. He declares, this is my beloved son, and with him I am well pleased. We see that in the baptism of Jesus, a great picture of a father-son relationship within the Trinity, within the father, son, and spirit. We see the relationship here between the father and the son here in Psalm 2. We see the Father and the Son. You see, they've always coexisted throughout eternity past. They have always existed as God. And here we see a relationship that has not only existed in eternity past, but now it's demonstrated as we see in the New Testament in the arrival of Jesus. 
The king installed on Zion is the true son of David and the true son of the father. The father declares, verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. As a gift of God's love for the son, the father promises to give him the nations. Jesus, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, very God of very God. He will one day receive the nations as an inheritance and a people for his own possession. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are also called by Jesus Christ. There's coming a day in which the son will receive his inheritance and it's the nations. And when you and I fast forward to the end of our Bibles in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, there's coming a day in which people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will rally around the throne and we're gonna worship with passion. We're gonna sing praise and glory and honor to the one who ransomed us and redeemed us and rescued us by the precious blood of the lamb. This is what is going to happen. And as the gospel goes forth through your giving and through your going, we who are a people who are investing in people who will impact their world for Jesus, the Lord is setting aside for himself a people for his own possession an inheritance of those who hope in him. This is why we do what we do, Westwood. When you and I give together, we're taking the the resources God has entrusted to us and we're sending them to the nations. We wanna see all people come to a saving knowledge of the truth. Why? For all who believe the gospel, whether it's in Shelby County or in Swaziland or in Sweden or in China, when the gospel goes forth, people believe the gospel, they trust in Christ, and they become a part of the inheritance of the Son. They become a part of the celebration day in which Jesus will come and he will gather his elect and we will worship him. But for those who stood up against him, Those who counsel against the Lord and his anointed, look at verse nine. He will swing his iron scepter. Those who rise up against him and his inheritance, he will deal with them with such severity, he will shatter them like pottery. You see, Psalm two is pointing forward to the last day when there will be one who will, Revelation 2, 27, He will rule them with an iron scepter and he will shatter them like pottery. The Lord will one day destroy his enemies. There's coming a day in which those who reject the gospel, those who say no to the good news of Jesus, it does not end well. And the Lord himself will destroy them. In Revelation 19, John says, then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called faithful and true and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen 
A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will rule them with a rod of iron. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who reject the gospel, wrath is coming. But right now, you have an opportunity to be saved from the wrath that is to come. And it's found in the gospel. That Jesus came and lived a perfect, sinless life that you and I couldn't live. And he died a death that we deserved at the cross. At the cross, Jesus gave his life. He died so that you can live. His blood was shed so that you can be forgiven. He has made a way for you to be restored into a right relationship with God through faith in him. The Bible says he was placed into a tomb, but he didn't stay dead. For on the third day, he came back to life, defeating death itself. So anyone who turns from sin and trusts in Christ by faith, you will be received, you will be adopted, you will be a part of the family, but you will also be rescued and saved from the day of wrath. You will be protected rescued permanently and forever by believing the gospel. Trust in Christ. Believe in him. Bank your soul upon Christ and you will be saved. This is the good news of the gospel, that we trust in the king who is seated on Zion. He loves you so much. He died for you. Surrender your life to the greater King David, Jesus Christ. For this king is not a weak king. Jesus is not a passive king. He is righteous. He is all powerful. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And those who do not repent and trust in him, those who rise up against him will one day face his wrath. For he must reign, 1 Corinthians 15, until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. What do we do? How do we respond? God must punish sin. It's by his nature. He's holy. He's perfect. He's righteous. He must punish sin. So in the gospel, we see where God punished his son so he doesn't have to punish you. He loves you. And he's made a way through his son. Believe the gospel. Trust in him. What does this look like? What's well, number four we see in the text. The nation's humble response to the Lord. Look with me in verse 10. So now kings be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. You see, instead of God's pronouncement of judgment and wrath, we see here where God says, I'm still going to show you mercy. I am going to give you an opportunity to believe upon me. Though you have conspired against me, though you have rejected me, though you have worked against me and against my anointed one, I am seeking you out and I'm inviting you to humble yourself to come and believe upon me. Bank your life upon me. I will show you mercy. 
In Psalm 103, we see the kind of love that is offered to us in the gospel, where King David writes, My soul bless the Lord, and all that is within me bless his holy name. My soul bless the Lord, and do not forget all his benefits. Listen to this. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve, praise God, or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. This is the Lord, the one slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, the one who is offering you mercy, freedom from the wrath that is to come. So Kenneth, what do we do? I want you to see right here. We see the five commands right here in this fourth stanza of Psalm 2. Verse 10, be wise, receive the Lord's instruction. As God's people, we are a people of the book. When the Lord speaks, we listen. When the Lord provides clarity through his word, we humble ourselves. We don't lord over it, we sit under it. We are a people of the book. And so we wanna be wise and we wanna receive the Lord's instruction. We wanna serve the Lord with reverential awe, give him our best, living our lives for his glory, putting the needs of others before ourselves. We get down and wash feet just like the Lord Jesus Christ. Husbands, you're washing the, the feet of your wife. You're taking out the garbage. You're looking for ways to change diapers and to care for those whom God's placed in authority, uh, uh, you're in authority over them. You serve, just as Jesus served the church by giving his life for her at the cross. This is what we do. We serve the Lord with reverential awe. Verse 11, we rejoice with trembling. We have joy, but we also know who the Lord is and what he has saved us from. All oh, the beauty and the power of the gospel is that we see who we are outside of Christ and we see in the scriptures what would happen if we didn't know Christ. And so we have joy that he would even call us by name. And yet we humble ourselves him and tremble. Verse 12, pay homage to the sun. Some of your translations say, kiss the sun. I like that translation better. It's this idea of paying homage, of humbling yourself before a king. And then 12, you take refuge in him. In fact, that's the impact point I want you to grab hold of this morning. Kiss the king. Take refuge in him and be happy forever. That's what we see there at the end of the text, into Psalm 2. Pay homage to the Son. Kiss the Son. By faith, kiss the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. Abide in Him. Bank your soul upon Him. If you don't, verse 12, He will be angry with you and you will perish. But Kevin just quoted John 3.16. He came so that those who believe in Him will not perish. 
So believe the gospel. Kiss the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Take refuge in him and you will be forever happy. It's interesting. The psalm begins with the nations in turmoil and it ends with the blessing of those who trust in the Lord. Let us be a people who put our ultimate trust not in kings or governments or presidents or governors. Our trust is in the king who rode a donkey into Jerusalem. Our trust is in the king who went up Calvary's hill. Our trust is in the king who defeated death. Our hope is in the king who is seated on his throne high and exalted. Our trust is in the king who is reigning as Lord over all. And our trust is in the king who is soon returning to rescue and ransom his bride. Our trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is who is in charge here.